Hi there, and welcome to Stories from the Workshop, the podcast about software and the engineers who build it. I'm your host, Meredith Luff. I'm the founder of Anvil, the tool for building full-stack web apps with nothing but Python. Have you ever wondered how a TV station works? Anders Kalland is the platform manager at RixTV, a Norwegian broadcaster, and I got to talk to him about how TV over the internet works, how even though you might not know it, your TV might be coming over the internet, and how he built the software that plays detective, fishing through the data to work out what's gone wrong when RixTV have an unhappy customer on the phone. I started by asking how he got into this business. Did you always intend to end up in broadcasting? Was that what you wanted to do right from university? Uh, no, uh, far from it. When I went to university, I actually studied physics uh, for a time. And, uh, well, I later found out that mathematics is uh, hard and boring and programming is easy and fun. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I moved, moved my fields a bit uh, and uh, eventually ended up in, uh, well, first cable and then uh, digital terrestrial broadcasting. And now lately I'm mostly working on online streaming services. So tell us about RixTV. What is it? What does it do? Yeah, RixTV is basically a Norwegian terrestrial broadcasting service. Not what you would consider as BBC in UK, but if you have a commercial counterpart to BBC, it would be basically be that. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, of course, it was terrestrial broadcasting using those old-fashioned antennas outside. But in the last, I would say, maybe... 10 years now, uh, everybody's been developing uh, supplementary services, uh, basically video services and uh, live streaming services uh, online. Uh, and in addition, uh, we've also been working on uh, IPTV streaming services. So basically that's uh, XTV today. It's uh, still a terrestrial uh, broadcasting service with the addition of a lot of uh, online streaming services and uh, IPTV services. So do, is it just something you can you can get up any web browser anywhere in Norway and watch live? Or do you have to be a subscriber? Yeah, basically you, uh, you, you need to be a subscriber. It's a paid service. Uh, and as a paid subscriber, you could either use a old-fashioned TV hooked up to a antenna, or you can go to a web browser or any application or Apple TV and uh, download a app and uh, watch your uh, favorite TV show or uh, live stream or whatever right there. And how many people do that? What's your, what size is your audience? We are like the third biggest in Norway uh, among the satellite and the different competitors. I guess that would put our audience at about 200,000 customers, uh, which by international standards, of course, is pretty small, but uh, still uh, the third largest in Norway. <laughs> and so how does the actual streaming and broadcasting part work? I mean, I imagine uh, most people listening to this will never have worked in something like a live broadcast environment. You know, how do you get the signal from, presumably these days, a rack of hard drives somewhere with the content loaded onto it uh, onto someone's television? Yeah, uh, we basically, if you take a TV channel, it could be like BBC or in our case, something like NRK or TV2. Uh, we get like a live feed from the TV channel and this will uh, go into our main head-on where it's transcoded from like a high quality contribution format to a uh, 
more of like a consumer distribution format, uh, which is uh, more easily playbackable from a normal TV device. It goes uh, from our head-end into the traditional form of delivery was uh, or is antenna uh, where we basically we uh, we encode it put it in what's called a statmux uh, and we send this uh, statmux around uh, in the country to different mm, transmitters uh, basically uh, big antennas on top of mountains which uh, broadcast these tv channels uh, around the country and uh, you will have an antenna on uh, your roof or somewhere close by which uh, uh, is pointed at against this antenna and which pulls down the signal and uh, decodes it and uh, shows it on your uh, TV through a set-top box or basically your uh, in-TV decoder. That's like the traditional broadcasting uh, setup. And what's different for the IPTV? Do you sort of take a different, do you encode it differently from the from the head or? Yeah, basically we take the same source contribution signal we receive and we run it into a different encoder, uh, which uh, encodes it in multiple video qualities because um, when you broadcast on the internet, you can't always be sure what kind of quality the end user will be able to receive. So you tend to like make uh, four or five different bitrates, as we call them, are different uh, qualities. The idea being that uh, you should at least be able to see something if you're on a bad internet, but if you're on a good internet connection, you can see something good. Yeah, so we take those uh, four, five, six different uh, qualities and we package them in a streaming format. Uh, Common is uh, something called uh, HLS or uh, Dash. Add encryption and uh, basically uh, push it to a CDN network. And then the end client will download it from uh, the CDN network onto your mobile device or TV or what you use for watching. And I suppose it seems to be a big change in how uh, TV thinks about distribution because previously you have an antenna and it is pushing data out there. And with uh, something like Dash or HLS, there's basically just a bunch of MPEG files sitting on a on a web server somewhere, and the mobile phone is choosing what to download based on how fast it thinks its own internet is. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, it will use like its uh, built-in adaptive streaming uh, algorithm to choose the best best video quality it uh, believes it can can download without uh, causing any interference in your viewing experience, basically. And I mean, I assume that this involves you shipping an awful lot of bits. Could you, could you give us some some impressive numbers of you know how many megabits you are shipping at any given moment? <laughs> There's lots of petabytes being transferred every month. What, what's the name above petabyte? Uh, oh gosh, uh, an exabyte, I think. Uh, I, I think we're getting into exabyte, but uh, it's a large number and it's also growing extremely rapidly. Uh, we're streaming twice as much uh, this year as we was uh, the year before and we were streaming twice as much uh, the year before as we did the year before that again so it's a rather uh, substantial growth as people are getting more and more used to using uh, different kinds of uh, methods for uh, viewing content basically Uh, do you have a forecast date where more people be watching your channels via the internet than via a tv um no uh, i don't and i think it will be quite a while still. But today about, well, more than half our users are able to stream uh, over the internet. That means that they're basically 
whatever they were using to watch TV before, they, they can now watch TV via the traditional um, broadcasting method, uh, but it's also connected to the internet, so they can uh, stream uh, in addition. And what we've been working a lot on the last, I would say, six years is basically, um, well, if you have a set-top box from TV and you watch a uh, live TV DTT broadcast, you won't necessarily, as a end consumer, completely know when you're watching a DTT broadcast and when you're watching a live streaming service. It's basically so seamlessly um, integrated that you're you're basically just watching live TV channels and you don't really know when, uh, unless you're actually checking what you're uh, watching. You don't really notice when you switch from a live broadcast channel to a live streaming channel. So basically at the moment, more than half of our customers are basically using some kind of streaming service and they might not even know it themselves. It's uh, just seamlessly happening without them actually needing to think about it uh, too much. Wow. So the the future just comes for you passively. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, it's a challenge to make it so, so easy that it's not a challenge for you to start using it, basically. So yeah, that, I mean, that level of growth, uh, must produce uh, an enormous amount of running to keep up on your end. I mean, if the the amount of traffic's doubling every uh, every year or so, you are having to manage this seamless transition. Uh, what's your part in this? Which which part of this enormous back end operation do you specialize in? Well. Basically, my um, as you say, my part is running uh, as fast as I can to keep up. Keep up because uh, I used to manage all the backend uh, operations, but now I don't anymore. Well, not all, but uh, almost most of it. Uh, but uh, the teams are, of course, uh, growing uh, together with the complexity and the range of services we are providing. So my part has traditionally been everything from ordering and quality insurance and specking for third-party developers to designing solutions, doing solution design for how, how, how everything is supposed to work and work together. And uh, yes, as you say, uh, things change very, very fast. I mentioned uh, we, we did all this work to be able to stream seamlessly to a uh, set box uh, without the user actually necessarily knowing that it's happening just you can just change channels and suddenly uh, you have streaming channels instead of terrestrial broadcasting channels and this was developed and uh, rolled out and uh, suddenly there were uh, thousands and hundreds of thousands of users using these uh, services it didn't happen uh, overnight but it didn't happen over a very long time stretch either it was uh, in a matter of uh, months basically and uh, what happened then is, of course, um, you have a customer service uh, center who is uh, struggling to keep up with all the changes being deployed. Um, you have like uh, you need to provide routines for how to s- provide support, how to uh, troubleshoot, um, all those things. And uh, as you as you mentioned, it's like a complete sprint to try to keep up with uh, the changing uh, landscape. And that's maybe a bit where Anvil uh, can, comes into play uh, on uh, our end, because as we started to grow and started to get more and more users, uh, we, of course, also had uh, more and more uh, call center calls, uh, users who basically needed support because something was not working as expected. And 
of course, we didn't have the tooling uh, ready for the customer center to handle these calls uh, at ahead of time. So in the beginning, it was uh, basically doing the best you can, trying to provide service, uh, even me providing the direct service, uh, troubleshooting the fresh problems using a pretty substantial amount of data. The thing when you develop a modern service, you do a lot of, uh, of course, uh, data collection, uh, logging, uh, testing. Um, so you have a lot of uh, insight into what might be failing, uh, but you didn't or we didn't really have any tooling around uh, how to figure out exactly what was failing for a specific customer. Uh, it was basically a lot of using yeah, scripts or uh, command line tools to uh, look into various things to try to figure out if something was uh, working or, or not for an end user. Could, could you give me an example of the sort of problem that people call up the customer service center with? You know, What sorts of failures are you looking for in this haystack of data? Yeah, sure. Uh, it could be very simple things like, uh, let's say you are a um, end user and you're uh, trying to stream something from our service, and uh, it's not really working. It's you get crappy picture quality. It's choppy. It's uh, it's just not a good experience. Um, and it can be multitude of reasons for that. Being the case, it could be like uh, we're having some backend issues, or our CDN network is uh, is struggling, uh, or your internet provider is uh, having some issues, or you're having some internal network issues, or maybe you're on a bad Wi-Fi reception, for example. And trying to troubleshoot where the problem is is very difficult for like a call center worker who's just like in the blind, only having the option of talking to the guy in the other end, especially when you consider the guy, the person in the other end might be uh, someone pretty old, uh, who's not really knowing what they have set up themselves either. Uh, so maybe it's just like the internal Wi-Fi is bad, or maybe you're having internet problems, or maybe it's um, an issue all the way in the back end. And it's very time-consuming to try to pinpoint where the issue is. And this was all landing on uh, on people like your plate. So the customer service people were escalating it to the engineers going, help, what's the problem here? Yes, exactly. Uh, so basically, I, I had to dig uh, into these problems. And for the most sense, uh, we had like the tools to uh, diagnose them. Uh, the problem was just that it was so complicated using those tools. Before we go into the solution, which I am really keen to hear about, like, with all this data, how do you work it out? I mean, I can't imagine how you tell the difference between dodgy local Wi-Fi and an you know and an internet service provider issue. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have basically lots of metrics collected from the, the devices, and we store all these met metrics in a Elasticsearch uh, search cluster. And then it's basically just, um, if you're wondering, is it a local issue or is it like a um, more broad issue? It's very simple to see. Are, are you seeing issues just for this customer or like all customers from a specific uh, internet uh, service provider having issues? Uh, or is it like, uh, how how is it uh, geographically distributed? Is it only like one city in Norway or is it like, uh, well, is it 
a complete city in Norway or is it a single user or is it uh, if it's like the entire country you can kind of assume it's <laughs> further back in the stack uh, <laughs> the problem lies also there's probably smoke rising from a data center somewhere yes exactly <laughs> so okay so oh, clearly that's not going to scale your traffic's doubling every year uh, you have all these customer service uh, inquiries being escalated to an engineering team uh, so what what did you do uh, I thought a bit about uh, what we were, <laughs> what we could do to it, uh, and considered a few options. And there were like three main options. Uh, one option was basically hire a bigger engineering team to <laughs> to handle all these uh, cases, uh, which of course is extremely expensive and uh, also time consuming in terms of training. Um, uh, another option was. Uh, basically uh, outsourcing it, writing, uh, well, putting together some kind of development team and uh, having them uh, make the solution. To, to present like some kind of human usable interface on the front of this Elasticsearch cluster full of, in, full of data? Yes, uh, and it's not just an Elasticsearch. That's actually just one of the sources. But, uh, but yes, basically building some kind of uh, user interface on top of uh, the data to provide exactly what was needed to, to be known by a specific customer for a specific uh, customer service representative. And yeah, that was considered. Um, also pretty expensive, I should imagine. Yeah, it, it would be the normal way to do it, actually. Uh, but it's pretty time consuming for me because uh, I would have to spend a lot of time basically writing user stories, describing uh, what this uh, system needed to do. And uh, of course, needed to send, set set up a small team of at least a couple of developers, maybe a front-end developer, a back-end developer, to, to build this thing. So basically it was the third option, which uh, was uh, let's try to make it uh, myself. And uh, that's where you come into play. <laughs> so what's your background? You've been a back-end programming, lately broadcast uh, sort of guy. Did you, you know, have the, the tool sets for building a web app yourself? Yeah, my background, I'm not strictly, uh, or at least was not a uh, developer. I had some experience with uh, coding. Uh, written some Java in university, written some uh, uh, mathematical programming languages and so on, but um, not really a developer. I uh, had some minimal experience with some scripting and knew a bit of Python, basically, and uh, yeah, a bit of JavaScript. So I'm, I, I was at this point uh, by no means a experienced or full stack developer, which was the problem was um, to make this kind of solution, you would traditionally need a full stack developer or a small development team, uh, which uh, I was not. So uh, that's when I turned to uh, to basically Anvil because it provided basically everything I needed uh, straight out of the box almost. I was introduced to the solution a few uh, few months earlier and just uh, had it in the back of my hand that it's uh, it was, it looked like a neat little uh, tool to building uh, front end stuff rather easily and I never really had an experience with building uh, front end components and didn't really have the motivation to to do it. So for me, it was like the perfect tool to allow me to build a front-end uh, on top of a back-end in a language I almost knew with uh, no help at all, really. Uh, how long did it take you to build the first version of something that you could start uh, using with the customer service team? I don't know. I, I, I think I 
built the first version of the front-end UI in a week or two, uh, maybe a week. Initially, um, I started actually working on a backend component, uh, basically a Node API, actually, which uh, had to be in Node because it used some libraries uh, made by some other developers, uh, which, again, was Node, so it was kind of locked into Node. Uh, so I had to learn Node to write that uh, backend API. And that took me around uh, maybe two or three weeks to have a functioning, somewhat uh, okay API up and running. And at that point, I uh, needed some to start looking at the front end of things. And uh, then I had, well, the reason Anvil fit so good for my use case was uh, I needed to have some kind of secure authentication against my backend. Uh, and uh, the way Anvil allows you to run basically a backend component code uh, where I could add basically the authentication code made it extremely easy to just build on top of uh, that. I remember asking some of you for some help on the, uh, on the way, and you were actually extremely helpful. <laughs> Always good to hear. And then um, presumably you've been iterating on that since. Yes. In the beginning, it was uh, um, my justification was kind of, I, I think I will, uh, I don't know completely what I'm going to build, of course. It, uh, it, uh, it's kind of a proof of concept, and it would take me as much time to just make it as to try to describe it well enough for somebody else to make it. Uh, so, of course, I just made it. Uh, and uh, after time, as it uh, starts seeing use, you you tend to just, uh, just uh, add on functionality. And maybe we thought about replacing it, but it was really never needed. So it just stayed, uh, stayed that way, and we're continuing to develop on it uh, today. Excellent. Uh, and how many different data sources do you are you now integrating? Oh, three different data sources. No, four actually. It's two different Elasticsearch clusters and uh, uh, a third-party service. And uh, there's also like this service for a, a direct connection to end-user devices to run like simple diagnostics on the end-user devices. Uh, so yeah. So you've brought it together so the customer service representative can look at data that's pulled out of these two different Elasticsearch clusters, some your third-party monitoring solution, and also run diagnostics or view diagnostic output from the individual consumer device to the person they're talking to on the phone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the idea was basically just uh, make it as easy as possible for the customer service. They basically just, when they get a call from a customer, they will load up this uh, dashboard. Uh, the customer number is inserted into the dashboard and it will uh, uh, basically find all the devices for this customer and uh, do some simple diagnostics on them and uh, just provide them with the output even before they're really started looking at technical stuff with the customer just so they can immediately see if uh, if um, it's connected to a bad Wi-Fi and uh, the user is starting to complain. Uh, it's We're having some issues with uh, the bitrate. They don't have to do a long diagnosis of what issues they know they can immediately start working on how to fix the wi-fi issue basically uh, because they're they've, they're in contact with the uh, unit in the user's living room that is complaining to the diagnostic tool that it can't talk to the wi-fi very well exactly that sounds awesome so and this is all brought together presumably you you're using python to pull this all together on the server to present to the user 
Yeah, we are basically using the, the, the way the Anvil works, where you have like the front-end and the back-end mm-hmm. components. Uh, the back-end components are talking to uh, all the Elasticsearch clusters, and it's also talking to the um, specific API to connect to the end-user device for the diagnostics. Uh, so all that data is ju- basically just pulled in and uh, then displayed for the, the user in the front-end component. And I guess you can just use the off-the-shelf Python libraries to do all these things. Yes, it's nothing really that complicated. It's just, it's all pretty easy. It's actually surprisingly easy. It's just uh, taking uh, off-the-shelf stuff and using it in the right way, basically. Do you have an idea of how long it would have taken with traditional tools? Uh, my guess it would have taken... About the same amount of time, but would have caused a lot, lot more uh, because you would basically have a development team working on it. So in other words, what it's actually saved you is a whole development team. Yeah, it, it basically turned me a somewhat novice wannabe Python developer into a full stack developer, which is pretty impressive, I would say. <laughs> Uh, I used to be actually the only one working on this and and my company eventually figured out uh, having one guy doing all this is a bit too little so we hired another one. So I introduced basically another broadcast engineer to Anvil uh, and the tooling Uh, and he had uh, also pretty minimal uh, background in programming uh, or development. But of course, it was extremely fun for him to work with. And within a couple of weeks, he was actually adding features and improving on the tool. So, so it's not no longer my tool uh, as it was in the old. It's uh, actually all of the recent changes uh, is from him. But it, it kind of shows how easy it is to work with and maintain actually also across small teams uh, of users. A broader question. Were there any, you know, any surprises that you discovered? Well, basically, I I set out not knowing completely what I wanted. Uh, so I knew there were going to be surprises, uh, which was kind of why I went with the solution of uh, trying to build it myself first as a proof of concept. Because uh, I, I was kind of the only one who could design this tool in a good way. Uh, but it's not like I knew exactly what I wanted. I could easily describe it to someone. Uh, it was a lot of trying and uh, experimenting. And, and does this work? Is this valuable? Uh, does this give us anything? And uh, if not, no, try something else. Uh, it's, uh, it's the normal iterative uh, development process. Uh, you never know exactly what you want. Uh, so so it's, it's very good to have a fast, easy way to just try something. And if it doesn't work, try something else. Well, and I'm assuming specking that for an external dev team would be an awful lot slower and less efficient if you had to, each time you had one of these sort of hypotheses or experiments, you had to specify it to somebody else, have them build it, and then work out whether it was a good idea. Yeah, it wasn't a tempting prospect at all. It was uh, <laughs> it was exactly what I uh, didn't want to do. So uh, that's that's of course why it was uh, extremely nice trying to actually do it uh, do it yourself in such a easy to start with development environment. Um, other than that, of course, um, the tool we made is. Uh, it, it's a pretty simple, small tool, but it's also extremely valuable. Uh, 
I know that uh, firsthand because uh, when uh, the Node API I made uh, went down, uh, uh, the customer service uh, is not happy uh, happy with me. So they, they're really dependent on this tool now. So I have to go back and rewrite my Node code, which I'm actually not uh, looking forward to because there I have to do all the deployment and stuff myself, uh, which is a bit of a hassle. However, on your end, uh, you, you of course have handled all that for me. So uh, that's not so much of a hassle. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so just to close out, if you had to say in one sentence, why Anvil? In one sentence, uh, why Anvil? It's um, it's just extremely easy to get started and uh, to make something. In one sentence, it makes uh, any developer into a full-stack developer. You don't really have to worry about the hosting. You don't have to worry about your deploy pipeline. You don't have to worry about uh, all those things. You can just write some simple code, make the solution, and then start using it. Wow. Anders Kalland, Platform Manager at Rix TV. thank you very much. My pleasure. That's all for this episode. You can find more episodes of Stories from the Workshop on our website at anvil.works, where you can hear about skullduggery on the phone networks, or how a recruiting pitch from Facebook turned into a startup. You can find Stories from the Workshop on Apple Podcasts, on our website, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.